The talk this morning is on open-heartedness. Meditation is very much a process of turning inwardly. And it's so important that that process of turning inwardly is not a turning away from anything. For if our meditation is to be truly effective in its power to release suffering and pain and alienation, it needs to be a process of opening, opening to ourselves, opening to deepening our connection with other people, with nature, with our world. Perhaps one of the greatest challenges that we encounter in meditation is when closing our eyes that we open our hearts. Certainly uh, the world that we live in cries out for open-heartedness. Just as we too as individuals are magnetized and enriched by open-heartedness whenever we encounter it. We hold within ourselves innate qualities of sensitivity, of awareness, and those qualities within our own consciousness mean that we cannot exclude from our consciousness the awareness that there is so much violence, so much war, so much conflict in our world means that we cannot exclude from our consciousness a degree of alienation and loneliness and deprivation that characterizes the lives of so very many people. But those qualities, innate qualities of sensitivity, means too that we are aware of pain within ourselves. We're aware of conflict, feeling lonely at times, of feeling deprived, of feeling inadequate. And our very awareness tells us so clearly again and again that so much of the conflict and alienation that we see in our world is no more than a reflection and a magnification of the conflict and alienation within the individual. At times we are very much touched by the degree of pain in our world, very much moved on a very deep level by the degree of conflict that characterizes our planet. And when we are touched and moved by pain, we often find ourselves looking for solutions, looking for answers, looking for ways, possibilities of bringing about the end of pain or conflict. At some point we realize that our solutions can only be effective if they are founded upon open-heartedness, that our solutions can really only be transforming if they're truly founded upon love, sensitivity, and that open-heartedness is a basic, a very key ingredient in bringing about an end to division and an end to conflict. I don't want to confuse the term open-heartedness as I'm using it with this concept of openness because it's a concept, this concept openness has assumed really quite a very strong power in alternative, in growth cultures. You know, it's very important these days to be very open. And sometimes openness is interpreted 
interpreted as being the capacity to exchange intimacy, to exchange meaningful confessions, to exchange moments of pain and joy. And sometimes there is open-heartedness in that openness, but also in that openness the mind can still be operating with its judgments, evaluations and expectations. And in that kind of inner preoccupation, not necessarily be fully present wholeheartedly with another person. And in not being fully present wholeheartedly with another person, what is lacking is that quality of open-heartedness. Neither do I want to confuse the term open-heartedness just with the capacity to say yes to everything in life, to be agreeable. You know, sometimes openness is again interpreted as this ability to welcome everything, to say yes to everything. And sometimes if we look at our agreeability or our selflessness, Sometimes we can see that our agreeability and our saying yes to everything, it may be an expression at times of openness. And sometimes our saying yes to everything is an expression of our own fear and uncertainty and anxiety and our inability to say no and to accommodate the feedback that comes with saying no to people. Here's a story When I was uh, in India some years ago, we lived in a community of of meditators for about a five-month retreat. And, um, you know, we were really into meditation, very much into, you know, developing loving-kindness and compassion and being open to everything and welcoming everything and going with the flow of everything. And at one point in our stay there, we got this puppy, this little cute little bundle of fur came, you know, fur came up prancing into the house and we adopted this Indian puppy and it was kind of nice for a while you know, everybody made a big fuss of it You know, it was something really to direct lots of loving kindness to and affection and all the rest of it after a while this little puppy started to act a little weird you know, and started um, biting, being a bit snappy and biting at people's an- ankles you know, occasionally taking kind of a hard nip you know, and a bit of blood and they would say, oh, it's okay, it's, you know, it's only a little puppy, you know, it's a very puppy-like behavior, you know, and be very loving. And after a while, this behavior started to get stranger and stranger until pretty soon it was kind of hard to go near this little puppy because it, it seemed to be getting kind of serious in its biting, you know, and we were all trying to, you know, encounter our own kind of nervousness and anger that was arising towards this dog that wasn't a cute little puppy anymore, you know, it was a sort of miserable dog we now had. Then after a while, we started to see it got kind of strange. We started to get maybe a little bit worried. In India, there's a lot of rabies. So we started to get a little bit worried. And, um, you know, we took the dog to a vet, and the vet said, oh, no, 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 this dog doesn't have rabies, you know. It just needs lots of care, you know, needs lots of love. It's come from a hard background. You know, Indian puppies, they don't have an easy time. So we expended lots and lots of care and attention and affection, even though every day somebody was getting bitten by this darn dog. It got worse and worse and worse. And, you know, we were all united in this effort (laughs) to save the character of this mongrel. 
it did get worse and worse. Eventually we had to tie the dog up because it, it was really getting kind of savage. And people would go out and sit and direct loving kindness towards this dog, out of reach, never, needless to say, <laughs> of how far it could go on its reign, but direct loving kindness towards this dog. And we, we, it was getting worse and howling and so frothing a bit of the mouth. We took it back to the vet. And this other vet said, well, maybe it does have rabies. I said, oh, dear. Surely all this loving kindness we have can overcome this, you know, this uncertainty. One vet says yes, the other vet says no. So, I mean, it, got, it went to extremes, you know. I mean, have you ever seen a group of meditators try and take a rabid dog for a walk? You know? <laughs> so, I, I mean, it's absolutely... You know, you can't, can't imagine them with two leads, you know, so that it couldn't get near either of them. I mean, this poor mongrel that we were inflicting all this loving kindness on. Uh, after a while, I did got more and more serious. I started to see the dog didn't want any water, so I frothed in the mouth. And we decided it really was serious, and we took the dog in a taxi to a hospital 200 miles away. And it died on the way, anyway. And it did have rabies. Um, and unfortunately, on one of its nice walks, it had bitten another dog in the village. So basically, it meant that all the dogs in the village had to be killed. And plus, we had a troop of 15 yogis every day tripping down to the hospital in a little line for rabies injections in their stomachs you know, for two weeks. It was a real symptom of where our this interpretation of yes and openness and welcoming can degenerate into absolute foolishness. And one really needs to see that there is wisdom in being able to say no. There is wisdom, yes, and openness and, and being able to say yes. But the capacity to say yes can also be an expression of weakness, of inability to say no. And it's so important in our own lives to know our own limits to know when it's okay to say yes and equally when it's all right for us to say no and to recognize our limits, to be able to take stands. What I mean, what I'm trying to express by open-heartedness is a deep inner connection with those qualities within ourselves which are essentially life-enhancing which enhance our own well-being, which enhance the well-being of our planet. Those co- connecting inwardly with those qualities that we have within ourselves of generosity, of loving-kindness, of compassion. Living in a way in which that inner connection with those qualities is very much at the forefront of our consciousness. Open-heartedness is our capacity to touch others on the level of the heart and equally to be touched. Open-heartedness, too, is our capacity to be present wholeheartedly in each moment and through that wholehearted presence to be able to respond very intuitively and spontaneously with sensitivity and with loving-kindness. That open-heartedness, to me, has its foundation upon receptivity, the inner receptivity of being listened to, our, being able to listen to ourselves, the outer receptivity of being able to truly listen to another person with our whole being. It's that receptivity of being very open 
to the messages that come through our own body, our own minds, our own feelings. Because if we can listen deeply inwardly, I feel that what we tune into are the fundamental, basic oneness in which all beings are connected. And if we can listen inwardly, basically we affirm that fundamental oneness. If we listen inwardly to our own needs, we see the most pressing kind of needs and aspirations in our lives are to be free from fear, to be free from pain, to be free from alienation. The most pressing kind of fundamental needs in our lives are to be able to live with love, with sensitivity, with understanding, in peace with others, in rapport with ourselves. And these basic fundamental needs we find within ourselves, we share with all living beings. Connecting with that open-heartedness inwardly to ourselves, connecting with that fundamental level of being within ourselves, we taste a kind of oneness with all beings. And through tasting that oneness with all beings, we are able and empowered to offer the gift of open-heartedness. It is a, a challenge in our lives. It's a great challenge to learn how to live open-heartedly, to learn how to live without aggression, without defensiveness, without alienation, without conflict. And sometimes when we might think of living in an open-hearted way, we probably find ourselves despairing, that there seems to be probably so many obstacles within ourselves, obstacles within other people that prevent or seem to obstruct that deeper level of connection and intimacy and communion between people. And we must be very, very aware or wary of not making a goal out of something like open-heartedness. Because we may make a goal out of it and think that we should be so loving and so caring and compassionate. And yet in making a goal out of it, we equally find ourselves denying and negating everything inwardly that doesn't conform to our image of how we should be. And in that kind of forcing and striving, we are basically anything but open-hearted towards ourselves. And it's a sheer impossibility to share open-heartedness with all beings if we don't know how to be open-hearted to ourselves, if we don't know how to be open-hearted inwardly. Open-heartedness is, I feel, something that is not new to any of us. It's an experience, a glimpse of a way of being that occurs again and again in our lives. There must be so many examples of it. You know, a friend calls you up and they're in a very difficult space, very unhappy, very despairing, and you're suddenly, very immediately and very intuitively able to really be there for them fully. You can listen and you can just be open and embrace them with your own sense of presence that you are there for them. You know, you, you walk down the 
the street or you take a walk in the country in nature and it's very beautiful and suddenly you may find that your mind just stops its chattering, its preoccupations, its drivel and suddenly your sense of being able to perceive your seeing, your hearing, your touching feels so enhanced. You may be on your way to walk, you know, and you're busy and you're occupied with what you're going to do that day and suddenly you see perhaps an old man or an old lady trying to cross the street and having difficulty with a busy road, and you can stop. Suddenly, it seems just the right thing to do. You stop and you help. You see a child running around, they fall over, and they're crying in their heart, and there's an immediate response. You just pick them up. You care for their heart. You care for their pain. And in that caring, you are fully, fully there for them. There's no sense of reservation, no sense of holding back, no sense of any kind of barrier between yourself and the moment. Those moments of open-heartedness, those experiences of open-heartedness, are experiences that make a special impression upon our consciousness. Basically, we are moved. We are moved in our hearts. And you can feel in that movement a dramatic change in your consciousness. Suddenly, there's not the preoccupation with what I did yesterday, what I'm going to do tomorrow. There's not a preoccupation with past, with future, with plans. There's a sense of being totally present. And in that being totally present, there's a feeling of lightness, of sensitivity, of appreciation for the moment, both your consciousness and your vision of the world opens in that moment of open-heartedness. And it's not that you seek for praise or reward for that open-heartedness. Rather, there is an intuitive giving, and through your very connection to the moment, you are enriched. It is complete in itself. And yet those experiences of open-heartedness can often feel very random. You know, seemingly without any kind of cause or way of continuing it. You know, the same friend can call you up the next day and you pick up the phone and there's an almost inner groan as soon as you hear their voice. You know, I listened to you so long yesterday. You know, what are you doing calling me up today? You're still stuck in that one after all my good advice that I offered you? You know, you go out in nature and it's like it's just a total background. You know, the mind is running away and chattering and full of all its plans and preoccupations. And you return from this lovely walk in the country, realizing that you could have absolutely been anywhere. Again, you're, you're on your way to work and who, lo and behold, who do you meet? The same old man, the same old woman trying to cross this busy road. Uh, but this, oh boy, and then you learn anything, you know? Maybe you really oughtn't to be out on your own, you know? Maybe you ought to go home and, you know, hire somebody to help you out. You know, the child falls over, and yes, you pick them up, but, you know, why are you so clumsy? You know, don't you ever learn from anything? And the mind is there in a totally different space, not tasting any level of open-heartedness. Instead, what is taking place is simply a backdrop to our own preoccupations. And there's no enrichment. There's a real deep sense that there's absolutely no enrichment in that moment. Instead, what we taste is separation. We taste the flavor 
of distance. In one moment of open-heartedness, we cross the boundaries of a kind of personal world that is so limited and defined by its preoccupations, its props, its sense of I. In the next moment, we find ourselves locked within that personal reality, and everything else is simply a backdrop to it. In one moment, we are enriched. There's a spontaneous giving, a spontaneous inner experience of loving kindness, of generosity, of compassion. In the next moment, we are not enriched. Instead, our own innate resources of generosity and loving kindness remain buried beneath our own preoccupations. And we may give, but we give with reluctance. Or we give with a sense of seeking return. It seems to me there is a a paradox that happens in our lives. On one hand, we see and really intuitively recognize the value, the deep significance of open-heartedness, of loving-kindness and generosity. We acknowledge the deep role that it plays in our lives. And we know that when we are in despair, when we have difficulty in our lives, what we really wish for is for someone to be truly present for us. Just to continue the saga of me losing my insights, this spring I came to the States, to California, packed all my insights into my luggage, and uh, the airlines lost all my luggage. My last three years' work and several chapters of a manuscript, and no copies, no tapes, anything. Anything. I was quite devastated, you know, I was absolutely devastated. I thought, oh, God, I mean, it was almost too overwhelming to perceive. And it was so interesting, people's responses to me. I mean, I felt quite upset by, <laughs> by this. The, the sort of classic response was, well, why were you so dumb, you know? Why did you put it in your luggage, you know? Why, why didn't you make copies? You know, have you never heard of Xerox machines? The other classic response well, was, um, well, this is really a good test of your practice, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> I have had the only response that I could appreciate was, oh, it must feel terrible (laughs) to lose all this. And it was absolutely the only response that I could find myself feeling any sort of connection with. But we all know in times when we do feel devastated by things, we don't want lessons (laughs) in how not to have it happen again, (laughs) you know, or how to avoid it in the future. We want that sense that someone is present for us with loving kindness, with generosity, with understanding. And we see that need within our own lives. And yet we also see operating the other side of that paradox where so often we find ourselves distancing ourselves, endeavoring to maintain a distance between ourselves and other people endeavoring to maintain a distance where we're not touched, where we're not moved. Because distance is our basic means of preserving safety, emotional, physical, psychological safety. We preserve our safety, no matter how shaky or how fragile it is, by distancing ourselves from other people. 
And distancing is something that is very encouraged in our culture. We all recognize that. We are encouraged to learn to avoid the unpleasant. You know, success in our culture is basically learning to avoid the unpleasant. Mm -hmm. Uh, We learn many ways of avoiding the unpleasant through distracting ourselves, through entertaining ourselves, through filling ourselves up, through consumption. We learn to avoid or try and avoid through these roots of escape, any sense of anything threatening or unpleasant within ourselves or within our lives, because it is the unpleasant that threatens our sense of security and safety. And so we can become real, really very, very skillful at avoidance, trying to construct a world for ourselves where nothing unpleasant or threatening enters, and it can consume so much energy you know, accumulating possessions, opinions, roles, identities. I know, I am, I have, I am this. And yet the world hasn't heard, basically, our message that we don't want to deal with the unpleasant. You know? So we keep finding the unpleasant comes to us in life. And this world that we spend so much time constructing and creating and protecting feels so very, very shaky. It is like a child trying to build a sandcastle when the tide is coming in. And our defenses are constantly being eroded and nibbled away. And if we are so addicted to avoiding the unpleasant, then basically our whole energy in living gets fed into protection, preserving our defenses. And then we result for ourselves the effect on ourselves is basically alienation, it is pain, it is fear, and it is uncertainty. And what we miss and what we sacrifice is that quality of open-heartedness towards ourselves, towards other people. At some point, we probably recognize in our lives that there is really no true safety in distancing And at some point, we probably also recognize that open-heartedness, loving-kindness, generosity, compassion, are probably the only really meaningful ways of living. If we carry our attachment to safety, to spirituality, then essentially what we engage in is defensive spirituality. We close our eyes and at the same time we close our hearts. And spirituality can become another sanctuary by which we try and protect ourselves. You know, we hear all these kind of views in spirituality. You know, you hear the view, well, the world is just empty, it's void. So it does seem indeed that the appropriate response is just to get out of it to concentrate on your own spiritual development, to forget about the troubles of the world, because after all, you're involved in very serious and important business and getting enlightened. You hear the concepts that judgment is negative, so that indeed seems to be a very good justification for becoming rather paralyzed in our response to the world. It becomes a justification for not being moved. 
And yet this word, you know, this kind of uh, judgment is negative business or bad becomes such a loaded concept. You know, people sit in practice and they think, well, I, you know, something comes up and they think, oh, gosh, I'm so angry. Oh, no, there I am judging myself. Oh, no, I shouldn't be judging myself. And it's a, judgment is bad and it's another judgment. And if we can't make judgments, where are we in our life? You know, if you walk out the center and, and you walk down the road and you see some kind of local gang of teenagers has captured one of your fellow yogis, you know, and they're, they're currently sort of stringing them up in a tree across the road, you know. Do you walk by, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to judge, you know, I'm not going to judge this guy, not, you know. This is karma, this is the way life is, you know, walk up by. I mean, judgment is a part of perception. It is a part of our mental abilities. One really needs to not be aware of where you adopt kind of spiritual standpoints that create limitation. You'll hear that, you know, the value of detachment, and we all recognize the value of detachment in our own practice and our own growth, but detachment, we must be very wary of not interpreting detachment as non-involvement, because actually our world and ourselves and other people cry out for involvement. And there's a kind of detachment that is an engaged detachment. It is not the detachment of withdrawal. It's not the detachment of divorce. You hear that you know the importance and see the value of equanimity. But equanimity doesn't mean that it's okay to be unmoved, untouched. Equanimity doesn't mean being invincible. You know, we might, you know, if we try and create or engage in defensive spirituality, concepts become very, very important. You know, you might say that you see the pain of the world, but basically developing boundless loving kindness for all beings, not recognizing that it's so much easier to love a thousand people in thought than to love one person in actuality. We may see pain, but we might think, well, I'm seeking my own enlightenment first. It's quite possible to use meditation as a means of creating a sanctuary. Not so long ago, I had someone come to a retreat, and they came from such a very difficult, difficult home life where there was a lot of conflict and a lot of aggression and a lot of anger. And she she came and she said, I want to learn how to meditate because I want peace. So we had some conversation and some instruction. She began to practice, and she came back a few weeks later, and she said, what have you done to me? She said, I'm so angry. I've been meditating every day, and I'm so angry, and this is not what I want to be. I started doing this business in order to be peaceful and loving and quiet, and here I am with all this anger. And recognizing that meditation, we can try and use it to create these kind of sanctuaries of quietness of nothing happening, of being able to block things out. But in doing that, in creating that kind of sanctuary, we deny actuality, we deny open-heartedness, and it simply doesn't work. We perpetuate separation and alienation. Spirituality bears a very tragic heritage of having separated itself from the world. Spirituality bears this tragic history 
of having separated itself from social activity, from political activity, from the life of relationship. And spirituality is made into something very special, whereas the world has assumed this label of being negative. But this separation of spirituality from the world hasn't contributed in any way to an end of conflict, to an end of a world filled with alienated and warring people. We need to see that we are, as individuals, we are of the world, we're in the world. We are the world, we have bodies, we have sexuality, we have thoughts, we have feelings. We are part of the world and we are spiritual when we can embrace the totality of ourselves with open-heartedness and utilize the totality of ourselves as a vehicle for awakening, not being limited by concepts, by ideals, by models of how should we should be. And open-heartedness begins inwardly begins with that embracing attention inwardly, that embracing awareness inwardly that doesn't make these divisions of what is worthy and unworthy, what we need to negate and let go of and transcend and what is good about ourselves. Our spirituality truly begins as our open-heartedness begins when we learn what it means really to be with what is, just to be with what is unconditionally, Healing the divisions and conflicts within ourselves through open-heartedness, we can offer the gift of open-heartedness in our communications, in our way of living, our way of being, basically through that medium of an ongoing process of being open-hearted towards ourselves, not making an ideal out of open-heartedness, that we are going to become open-hearted, because so often if we make an ideal out of something like open-heartedness, we find ourselves constantly judging and evaluating and negating our failures to be open-hearted. Again, some months ago, someone came on retreat and they'd been practicing for a long time and were very sincere in their meditation. And they were in a relationship. And this woman's partner had, without saying anything to her, started up a relationship with the woman who lived in the apartment next door and kept up this deceit for a period of time. And also this woman who came to retreat which was also eight months pregnant. And the, her partner kept up this deceit for a long, long time and eventually she hurt them through the walls of her apartment. And she came to the retreat and basically her primary space was that she wanted to kill. <laughs> Quite understandable. She wanted to kill her partner's lover. And she got herself into a space where this seemed quite the most reasonable thing to do. And she was basically in a space, you know, basically of planning the best way to do it. Um, you know, it's okay. I mean, we talked about it a bit. But then she said, you know, I mean, I really realized that at this point, you know, I must leave spirituality. I must, because I'm obviously not worthy. I'm a failure, I can't possibly be a spiritual person because look at these feelings that I have of violence, of aggression, of anger. And then it just seems that, you know, no matter all, all this work that I've done, it's been worthless, that it hasn't meant anything because look, this has arisen and look how I react. 
And not only was she punishing herself for her failure to meet up to her ideal, but also carrying the weight of this terrible, terrible conflict and pain. And it's so important that we don't use spirituality and our own ideals and models and spirituality of how we should be to punish ourselves. Because in punishing ourselves, there isn't any open-heartedness. Open-heartedness is in acceptance, in knowing who we are, beginning to really experience what we are going through, and in learning how to utilize the entirety of our human experience, the totality of our human experience, as a means of learning, a means of awakening, a means of growth inwardly. And would really question the ways in which meditation <clears throat> can lead to open-heartedness. The Buddha was once asked, um, by Anandi, was asked, would it be true to say that a part of our practice is for the development of love and compassion and generosity? And the Buddha said, no, it's not true. It would be true to say that the whole of our practice is for the development of loving-kindness and compassion and generosity. And open-heartedness, I feel, is absolutely essential to developing a spirituality which is concerned with healing conflict, with healing division, with healing suffering. It is essential to a spirituality which is going to bring us to wholeness and to freedom. And how does it happen? How does our own practice relate to developing open-heartedness? Can we close our eyes, basically, and learn in closing our eyes how to open our hearts? Can in our meditation, can our meditation develop strength and yet still allow us to be vulnerable? Can our meditation develop strength without becoming invincible, untouched and unmoved? Can we, our lives, be an expert? Can through our meditation, can we really connect with what is of true value, true significance, and use our meditation to live in accord with what is true? Because it is so important to be able to live in accord with what is true. And can our meditation be a sanctuary, not of avoidance, not of defensive spirituality, but a sanctuary in which there's a nurturing of our own innate qualities of generosity, of loving kindness and compassion. Can we learn how to be receptive without being passive? Can we learn how to be vulnerable without being overwhelmed? Can we learn how to be equanimous and yet still be so very, very open to being touched and to being moved. And it seems to me that none of these are opposites or contradictions, but that are, all of them are made possible through open-heartedness. We need to honor our own fundamental needs and aspirations. We need to honor and respect our own needs to be free from fear and conflict, to live with peace, sensitivity, and understanding. And in honoring that, really again and again dedicating ourselves and our lives to learning how to live in accord with that. 
to dedicating ourselves to that which is life-enhancing and to learning to understand the qualities within ourselves that deny both our own well-being and the well-being of our world. Open-heartedness begins inwardly. We learn to be generous inwardly. If we're going to learn to be generous outwardly, we need to know what it means to be generous inwardly, how to allow ourselves to be, how to go from a place of striving and controlling and models and images to a place of allowing and learning how to be with ourselves in each moment with generosity and with care. If we're going to know loving kindness in our lives, we need to have a foundation inwardly of learning how to be loving towards ourselves. And so often this is such a massive and dramatic shift from the way in which we often treat ourselves, of either denying or negating or indulging, learning how to be caring and sensitive inwardly. We learn, need to learn how to be compassionate inwardly and learning that often letting go of things, letting go of our fears, our anxieties, letting go of our negativities, our resentments, our resistances, that letting go is actually an act of compassion towards ourselves. Letting go is not a punishment, it's not a deprivation. So often letting go, the capacity to let go inwardly, is purely an act of compassion towards ourselves. And that inner compassion allows us to extend ourselves with compassion towards all beings. Open-heartedness is realized in practice if it is an integral part of our practice. If our emphasis is, if we see the futility of controlling and denying and forcing, and learn in our practice that peace of surrendering to being with what is, You know, so often we have these ideals of peace, that peace is the absence of the unpleasant, or that peace is the absence of the challenging. But peace is not the absence of anything. Peace is our own inner capacity to be with what is, without prejudice and without judgment. Just to be with what is. And in that being there is peace. Meditation is not just a process of negation, of letting go of things, of renouncing things, of transcending things. Meditation is a process of nurturing and developing an inner environment of loving kindness and generosity. It's a process of developing our own innate resources of loving kindness and generosity and compassion and appreciating the power that our own resources have to transform appreciating the power of our loving kindness and generosity to transform inwardly and in that appreciating the power of those qualities of our own being to transform outwardly. Open-heartedness is a moment-to-moment experience. Each moment that we connect with those innate qualities generosity and loving kindness and compassion in that moment there is open-heartedness each time we practice in a way of peace of sensitivity of loving kindness our practice is a practice of open-heartedness each time we can articulate and express those qualities within ourselves our lives too are an expression of open-heartedness 
not as an ideal, as something to be attained in the future, but as a way of being in the present. May all beings live with loving kindness. May all beings live with generosity. May all beings live with compassion. (laughs) 